The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 56 Sweet Adeline I can see your smiling face as we wandered, down by the brookside, just you and I. And it seems so real at times till I awaken, to find it all vanished, a dream gone by. If we meet some time in after years, my darling, I trust that I will find your love still mine, though my heart is sad and clouds above are hovering, the sun again, love. For me would shine. Richard Gerard. Winter Solstice, 2021, Peoria Journal Star. Canton House Fire Kills Nine-Year-Old Girl. Canton, a nine-year-old girl was killed Sunday in a house fire in Canton. Adeline V. Walton died as a result of the fire that began about 5 a.m. in her residence at 726 East Chestnut Street. When Canton Fire Department personnel arrived, they found thick smoke and a large amount of flames. They also were told one person was inside the house, on the second floor. The victim was found and brought outside, where CPR was performed. The victim then was transported to Graham Hospital, where at 6.21 a.m., she was pronounced dead. Preliminary results from an autopsy revealed Adeline died from carbon monoxide intoxication because of inhalation of smoke and soot, Fulton County Coroner Steve Hines said Monday. While attempting to rescue Adeline, a Canton firefighter sustained moderate injuries. He was treated at Graham and released, according to the fire department. Three family members were still being treated Monday at Graham. Canton and state fire officials were investigating the cause of the blaze. Obituary Adeline Violet Walton, 9, of Canton passed away on Sunday, December 20, 2020, at Graham Hospital in Canton. She was born on December 5, 2011, in Peoria to Shane and Amanda Walton. They survive. While we are grieving our loss and our hearts are filled with sorrow, we take great comfort in knowing that some of the best is taking care of her and that she's getting to play with Chandler, her dog she recently lost. Adeline lived life to its fullest. She could always make you laugh with a quick wit and the most dynamic personality. She taught us all to love harder with her constant cuddles and kisses. Adeline dreamed of being a famous actress. We are so thankful that in her short life, she had such an amazing life. She enjoyed family vacations, loved the ocean, got to fly, went to Disneyland and Disney World, saw Pike's Peak, and ate voodoo donuts in Portland, Oregon, and Wisconsin Dells, to name a few. She loved her family harder than anyone I've ever met. We will never forget her, and she will always be missed. I feel so blessed that I got to be her mom, and her dad feels the same. Adeline was the sweetest little thing.
Amongst the case files for Donnie Ball's defense, I discovered a newspaper clipping from back on January 6, 1995. On the front page of the Kenton Daily Ledger, an image of an old, whitewashed Victorian, nearly undistinguishable from the Tompkins home at 365 South First. The caption? A fire broke out at an apartment complex located at 42 North Avenue A on Thursday afternoon. The Canton firefighter is shown rushing to extinguish the fire and prevent it from escalating. Also shown are two residents of the complex, who were trying to clear their lungs of smoke and hail during the incident. And indeed, just beyond a fire engine, two residents are frozen in time on the frozen lawn, thrust forward, hands on their knees, coughing and struggling for a clean, fresh breath of air. It should be no surprise to anyone that America's homes are burning down. The aged wooden structures, many with shoddy electrical wiring from the turn of the century, in fact, in any given five-year period. House fires cause 2,620 deaths and 6.9 billion in property damage. In 2018, the national average was 2.5 civilian fire deaths and 9.8 injuries per 1,000 fires. The top three causes of fires in homes are cooking, heating equipment, and electrical malfunction. It can take just 30 seconds for a small flame to turn into a major blaze. An average of 358,500 homes experience structural fires each year. More than 3,000 Americans die in fires each year. And sadly enough, every day, at least one child dies from a fire inside a home. Not only had Adeline fallen victim to these unfortunate statistics, but little Justine had as well. In Fire Marshal Anderson's initial report of the January 13, 1993 fire, he described the blaze as burning hot, fast, and intense we should consider the fire hazards of the typical Victorian home. As society rapidly advanced during the Victorian era, as industrialization kicked in and people became wealthier, although several new inventions took place during this time, making life easier and more comfortable, Victorian homes were, nonetheless, still full of hazards. In particular, fire was and still is especially rife due to a number of factors. During the Victorian era, candles and oil lamps were used to light homes. And even when gas lighting and electricity became more common, many Victorians still used candlelight on most occasions to bring light to their abodes. And especially at Christmas, Victorians would traditionally decorate their trees with candles, and this odd fashion further increased the risk of starting a fire. When gas was introduced to light homes during Victorian times, it was regarded as a revolution, but it was not without its own risks. Victorians became fond of using chandeliers powered by gas, often producing large flames that could easily catch on nearby flammable fabrics. As more and more 19th century homes began to rely on gas and the supply industry became more competitive due to the lack of regulation, suppliers often cut corners in a bid to outdo their rivals, which resulted in poor quality worksmanship with the production of gas pipes and questionable safety standards. Consequently, there was a surge in fires and explosions during this time. Still today, I can't help but not only consider, but also recall Trust Officer David Haynes' version of events when he arrived at Donna's home that morning and discovered the fire. As he quickly backed out of the front door after observing a brilliant red dome ablaze across the room, he claimed the gas out had been circling and winding out of control. And although most households today are much safer than they were during the Victorian era, fire hazards of these aged wooden structures are still major and as they age, an equally growing cause for concern. Though it is true that today's construction burns much faster than old homes due to the light weight of new materials, older homes are nonetheless statistically at higher risk of electrical fire. 
The main reason being that older homes were built with electrical systems which are out of date. Old decaying wire, defective heating equipment, and cracked online chimneys. And additional hazards that accompany older appliances and overloaded outlets. There should be little surprise that the holiday season is also house fire season. December, January, and February are the peak months for such tragedy. Families torn apart, unfairly juxtapositioned, along with that time of year for coming together of family and loved ones. And nearly all the fires mentioned in this episode had occurred during those winter months. As the sun sets earlier in the day, the ironic thing is, with old school construction and furniture, you have almost 15 minutes to escape a fire. And in modern construction with modern furniture, you have 3 to 4 minutes to escape. However, seeing that 51% of all deaths from residential fires occur from 11pm to 7am, and that more than half of all home fire deaths occur between 10pm and 6am, most fire deaths are not caused by burns. And adding that most fire deaths are not caused by burns, but by smoke inhalation, there is often little difference. Smoke can incapacitate so quickly that people are overcome and can't reach an otherwise accessible exit. To make matters worse, the synthetic materials commonplace in today's homes produce especially dangerous substances, and when inhaled, they can be instantaneously lethal. Between 60% and 80% of all sudden deaths occurring at the scene of a fire are attributed to smoke inhalation. But what of the case of Donna and Justine Tompkins, where no signs of smoke inhalation were found upon autopsy? Well, seeing an indoor fire can reach or exceed temperatures of 1100 degrees Fahrenheit. Even one breath of this scolding air can be lethal, potentially shutting down the lungs and causing cardiac arrest before smoke and thus carbon monoxide can even reach the lungs. Additionally, inhaling superheated gases can burn your respiratory tract, whether or not the gases present are toxic or not. Still, the problem with synthetic materials, such as PVC, vinyl, and countless others, used so commonly in home construction and furnishings these days, is that inhaling these gases can kill unmercifully. Not only is Canton, Illinois not immune from these statistics, but the number of aged Victorian era homes, especially those not modified or updated to meet current safety standards, may elevate those odds in this particular community. The Canton Fire Department has a rich history dating back to the 1800s. An early records show a hook and ladder purchase way back in 1885, the Volunteer Fire Department, which served Canton at the time. The first paid Canton Fire Department was established in 1906, located at 49 South First Avenue. Firefighters worked for one week, then had one day off. This work schedule was replaced with a 24-hour on, 24-hour off schedule in the early 1920s. Horses pulled the fire apparatus, and six horses were on duty when the paid fire department started. By the mid-1920s, all fire equipment was motorized. As new technology became available, equipment was upgraded to steam engines, and finally to gas and diesel engines. Regardless, Canton is no stranger to fire. In fact, since its founding in 1825, Canton has faced not only multiple devastating natural disasters, such as floods and tornadoes, but also fire and explosion. So much so, 
that Canton has realigned its community motto as being not only hardworking, but so significantly due to the resilience and drive Cantonites have shown coming back from such fires. Quote, like a phoenix to rise again. For example, during the 40-year period from 1860, when the Parlin and Orndorff Company was organized, to 1900, significant manufacturing advances were made in this company. As it continued to grow, the surrounding land was purchased, and new buildings were erected. In 1899, it was announced that an expenditure of half a million dollars resulted in an entire block being covered with new buildings. A new foundry, 90 by 335 feet, had been built. A malleable iron foundry with large storehouses had been added. A new wheel factory and warehouse for wheel storage was built. And an electrical plant with a capacity of 5,000 incandescent lights were installed. This period of success in the development of farm equipment manufacturing was marred by a disastrous explosion, which had been the worst in the history of the plant and of Canton at the time. At 7.10 a.m. on Saturday, December 16, 1882, a dull thud was heard throughout the city. Windows rattled, and as people looked outside, they could see a cloud of steam rising over Parlin and Orndorff Company. The boilers in the shop had exploded, tearing out walls of the engine house and hurling various sized pieces of iron for many blocks around. Nine men were killed in the blast, seven were killed outright, and two died as a result of their injuries. This was a great catastrophe for the city of Canton, as well as for the victims and their families. A thorough investigation was conducted following the disaster, and the verdict of the jury stated that the explosion was accidental and unaccountable, with no blame being placed upon any person or the Parlin and Orndorff Company. More difficult times struck the shop as the Union forced a company-wide strike. Lasting over 170 days, the walkout was then the longest-running strike in UAW history. In 1983, the company reported a $165 million loss. Later that year, officials of IH announced the plant would be closed as part of its overall strategy to return its agricultural equipment business to profitability. Officials said that the Canton plant would be closed effective October 31, 1983. The economic blow to the community was profound. Unemployment rose to double digits. Families moved away to find work and stores closed. The downtown became almost deserted and historic buildings fell into disrepair. It was a very, very difficult time for the Canton community. 16 years later, the International Harvester Plant was destroyed on August 6, 1997 by a raging fire that ripped through the four-block area and spread black ash throughout the city. Emotions ran high as memories came rushing back to many residents while they stood by and watched a longtime Canton landmark burn. The fire started on the south side of the plant, in an area near the warehouses, and was reported at 4.03 a.m. Around 4.45 a.m., a column of soot and smoke shot hundreds of feet into the air, according to Canton Police Chief Mike Elam, as flames engulfed the elevators and warehouse portions of the plant. At dawn, a huge black cloud of smoke could be seen from all over the county and beyond. By 5 a.m., the heat was so intense Chief Elam ordered knocking on doors of residences on Walnut Street between 4th and 5th Avenues to advise residents of the potential danger. Residents on Walnut from 2nd through 4th Avenues were also evacuated and moved north to Chestnut Street. The fire indirectly led to the fatality of one woman, Betty Carley, the 69-year-old resident of Sunset Manor Nursing Home, was pronounced dead at 7.50 a.m. after being struck by a van while the nursing home was being evacuated. Mayor Don Edwards said at the time, that the six-story warehouse glowed in flames and the old, dry, 
12 by 18 inch square timbers in the warehouse were helping to fuel the blaze. Every fire department in Fulton County was activated. In addition, fire departments from Pekin, Bushnell, Macomb, Travoli, Havana, East Peoria, and others reported to be on the scene. As the fire continued to burn into the third day, the famous IH whistle was found. The whistle which blew regularly, seven times a day, was found late on August 7th in the powerhouse of the plant. For many years, the whistle blew off a trail of steam as it announced times for workers to take a break at lunchtime in the beginning and end of shifts. The whistle could also be heard on special holidays, such as New Year's and Christmas Eve. On August 10th, using the smoldering IH building as a backdrop, officials from the city of Canton and the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms held a press conference to confirm what many locals already suspected. The fire still burning at the plant was the result of arson. November 16, 2016. Headlines of the Peoria Journal Star read, Disaster. Large gas explosion in downtown Canton. Canton. A natural gas explosion Wednesday night in downtown Canton killed one person, authorities said. The deceased was an Ameren, Illinois employee, part of a crew investigating a gas leak in a building at 45 Eastside Square. Ameren and Graham Hospital officials did not identify the worker. At least 11 others required hospital attention. The explosion took place shortly before 6 p.m. The Ameren workers arrived at about 5.30 following a report a contractor damaged a gas service line. The crew had shut the line and was making repairs when the explosion took place. It's an unfortunate and tragic accident, Canton Mayor Jeff Fritz said. Jill Dillfield of Canton, a psychiatric nurse, said she was eating at Billy's Tap about a block from the square when she heard a boom. All of a sudden, I heard the biggest kaboom I've ever heard in my life, she said. I thought, oh my god, it's lightning, but then I realized it wasn't storming. Everyone jumped. The door where I was sitting blew open. The power flickered off and on. And then people rushed outside, looking to the square and saw smoke. My nurse instincts kicked in. I ran down and saw a man lying in the parking lot near Dollar General. He had been there working on a gas leak that they were called to work on. He reminded me of those 9-11 victims that you saw, all covered with dust and debris. The man was alert, but wanted to know about his co-workers. Another man emerged from the rubble. He had a big knot on his forehead. He looked up and saw a third man buried in rubble. She stayed with the first man until paramedics arrived and tried to help the other injured man, but she was shooed away from first responders. As she walked off, she saw a fourth person, a bleeding man who had been struck on the head with tile from the building's ceiling where he was when the explosion happened. A beam from the building, he told her, hit his leg. He was just there on the curb of the sidewalk, bless his heart. He kept telling me that he was okay, that he just had a small bruise on his leg, but I could tell he was in shock. He was so cold, she said. The building where the explosion occurred was known as the Opera House Professional Center. It dates from the 1890s. Officials could not confirm how much damage was done to that structure. In the overall area, damage was extensive, according to Canton Police Chief Rick Nichols. Broken glass was strewn around downtown streets. At 7 p.m., Airman, Illinois reported more than 500 power outages in the Canton area. The explosion was among several natural disasters that have affected downtown Canton over the years. In 1995, a tornado struck the area. In the ensuing years, fires destroyed buildings along or near the square. Following the most recent devastation, downtown was filled with police, firefighters, emergency service crews, and onlookers. Richard Meyer, an optician at Bard Optical, was working at the time of the blast. The lights went out, I heard a big boom, I felt pressure, said Meyer. The next thing you know, 
all the glass was broken. The Bard office manager, Jessica Bowen, was on her supper break at a restaurant and bar down the block. We thought someone drove into the side of the building, she said. Bill Babb resides in a high-rise apartment building about three blocks north of the explosion site. He was watching television with his wife when the exterior flash illuminated his apartment. I was in the military ten years in field artillery, Babb said. It reminded me of a 200-pound round coming down within a half mile of me. My first impression was that it was a gas explosion. It was too loud for just a transformer. Kristen Strimmel, 23, was watching TV at her house when she heard the explosion. Our windows shook, she said. It sounded like a firework going off right in front of her house. She and others got into their truck, drove five blocks or so downtown, and were stunned to find the damage. All those windows were completely shattered, she said. Paper, she said, littered the ground. Clothes were all over the floor in the JCPenney. She said there was a heavy smell of gas in the area. B.J. McCollum of Canton was at the high school, about a mile north of downtown, when the explosion occurred. He said it shook the baseball nets inside the gym. Karen Calhoun was teaching a dance class at the Canton YWCA, which is just off the square in downtown. The power went out and the whole building actually shook. The sound was deafening and I actually fell over from the shake, she said. I have never experienced anything like it in my life. I dismissed my students to go home to safety as soon as we found out what happened a few minutes later. When she stepped outside, she saw debris everywhere. When I stepped outside, I saw debris floating, making the air cloudy. The stench of gas was awful and made my eyes water. I saw windows in neighboring buildings blown out with the glass in the streets and sidewalks. She said, I went and saw bricks and all kinds of building materials spread all over the square. Along Elm Street stood Bob Babel, an optometrist who operates Progressive Vision Center. About 90 minutes after the blast, Babel was carrying a broom and shovel in an effort to clean broken glass from the street, but a police officer asked him to stay clear of the area. I thought maybe it was an earthquake, Babel said. There was just lots of confusion at the time. I'm still in a daze, honestly. Babel wasn't sure if his building was damaged. I'm more worried about possible fatalities, he said. That's my biggest concern right now. I'm not really worried about my building. I'm worried about that. Worry. A small town syndrome. I quote Emmanuel Kant. The nice thing about living in a small town is that when you don't know what you're doing, someone else does. Observed symptoms of small-town syndrome include, but are not limited to, gossiping to the point where you're spreading rumors that aren't true, coming down on others because they're not doing what you define as normal, rejecting others because they don't conform to what you define as normal, feeling a sense of pride about your small town, so much so that you reject immigrants, even though you may be one yourself. When people don't leave their comfort zone, they develop a fear of change and a fear of change results in resistance to change. And we have covered this phenomenon in previous episodes. But again, this particular fear of change, in my experience, tends to have a negative impact on the people in the town, in their actions and opinions. And while working hard, undoubtedly, and rebuilding time and time again, when someone has lived for so long in a small town, they form a sense of entitlement to themselves, and act as if there isn't a relevant world outside of their own. Someone with small-town syndrome is usually majorly concerned with gossip and events only happening with people in their town, and lets their life revolve around such meaningless rumors. This is per dictionary definition, verbatim, and my meaning of such is not to judge either small towns or those who reside in them. Actually, the meaning of such phenomenon is to redirect this chapter, this episode, back to the Donald Bull case. 
The bull case was rife with rumor, so I felt it would be entirely unjust to not wholeheartedly attempt to reproduce an element of that environment and sense of rumor and gossip while creating this project. There have been multiple accusations that this project hosts nothing more than gossip. Still, I never once took those words in any derogatory fashion, as, in fact, this observation suggests my intention has prevailed not to create a show staged and fashioned with small-town syndrome for the sake of itself, but to present the possibilities and correlations between such a syndrome and the bull case itself, and not only the nature of the investigation, but the trial as well. And again, this is not a judgment, for I am neither jury nor judge. That is only a role you play, ladies and gentlemen. That burden alone is on your shoulders to determine. But let's hit pause for one moment before we dive back into Donnie's pretrial. Worry. Fear. It is an understandable emotion in any community when a potential killer is on the loose, and one can hardly blame the old tradition of scapegoating for serving as a sort of salve to soothe those fears, regardless of whether the danger has legitimately been resolved or not. Like many lame attempts at creating safer homes against fire, often such results are nothing more than a mere projection of safety while reality still lurks in between walls and attics and basements, in dark alleyways and in the shadows of society. How can we shake this correlation between murder and fire? Well, for one, we may not be able to. And for that, we can thank the McDonald Triad, also known as the Triad of Sociopathy, or the Homicidal Triad. It's a set of three factors, the presence of any two of which are considered to be predictive of or associated with violent tendencies particularly concerning serial offenses, a claim that specific childhood patterns can predict later predatory behavior. The triad links cruelty to animals, obsession with fire setting, and persistent bedwetting past the age of five to violent behaviors, particularly homicidal behavior and sexual predatory behavior. And what do we have before us with this case but a fire, supposedly set by a sex-crazed man who by all accounts had a profoundly troubling childhood one akin to compulsive rocking back and forth, with knees drawn into the chest, sat silent in a corner, and what could have likely been persistent bedwetting. While the rocking is factual, the bedwetting is not. But undoubtedly, within the context of small town syndrome, the syndrome of Donnie being a bedwetter certainly would not be far off the mark as a product of the rumor mill. So while the persistence of only two of these three triads is required to be considered to be predictive of or associated with violent tendencies, particularly in relation to serial offenses, in this case the fire alone sets the stage. Donnie was said by his girlfriend Rochelle Hillmeyer at the time of the double homicides to have loved the family cat more than he did her, to be more affectionate to the cat than he had her, and with zero other evidence of any signs of animal cruelty one could check that off the list. But at the same time, Rochelle pressed that Donnie loved to rake up and burn any debris in the yard he could find and catch it ablaze. But seeing 99% of Fulton County residents find solace in the exact same disposal method of leaves and fallen limbs on their lawns, 
And I can't help but recall Trust Officer David Haynes speaking of his lifelong interest in fire. Quote, Yeah, you could say I know a lot about fire. Probably more than most. But at the end of the day, what do we have here, ladies and gentlemen? But speculation and gossip, another example of small town syndrome. Reality is often different from how things tend to work. More often than not, all that is required in small communities is to simply throw a vague notion out there and let it take on a life of its own. The rumor mill in full force, igniting flash fire gossip, which leaves even the vaguest notion of innocence until proven guilty, scorched earth. To further state the case, on August 12, 1995, a Fulton County Criminal Justice Survey, polling of random residents of the county in various locations, was conducted concerning the case of the People vs. Donald Bull. The questions presented to be answered yes or no were as follows. 1. Are you a registered voter or licensed driver of Fulton County? If the answer is no, end the survey. 2. Are you familiar with the ongoing murder case charging Donald Bull with the murder of Donna Tompkins and her three-year-old daughter who were found in their burned-out Canton apartment? 3. Are you familiar with prior criminal cases involving Donald Bull? 4. If the answer to both 2 and 3 is no, end the survey but record the answer. 5. Have you read about the current case in newspapers or seen details of the case on TV? 6. Has the case ever been a topic of conversation in your community? 7. Does the information that you've received lead you to believe that Donald Bull is guilty of the murder of the two victims? 8. Do you feel that your knowledge or opinion of prior criminal charges against Donald Bull would affect your ability to be an entirely fair and impartial juror in the current case? 9. Based upon your knowledge of community awareness concerning Donald Bull, do you feel that publicity may have affected his chances of receiving a completely fair and impartial trial in Fulton County? Amongst the survey attached to an affidavit swearing all statements to be true, signed August 18, 1995, by the affiant who organized the poll, the results completed and recorded contained herein are as follows. Survey Location Canton, Kmart Yes, every individual polled at Kmart had read or seen details of the case in the media. All but one individual polled at Kmart said yes, they believed that due to the information they had received, they believed Donald Bull is guilty of the two murders. The odd one out simply stated, might be. Additional notes that were taken of pollster comments stated the following. The guy mumbled several things, seemed uncomfortable, and then said, the guy should be executed for doing something like that. Anyone should if they did that kind of thing. And for another pollster, friend of the Tompkins, Donald Bull cut their throats and set the house on fire. It was a dirty shame. No reason for this to happen. And another, he could be guilty, but there could also be an upstanding citizen involved. No eyewitnesses. Location, Canton Hardy's. Yes, I have heard about the current case in newspapers or seen details of the case on TV. And yes, the information that I've received does lead me to believe that Donald Bull is guilty of the murder of the two victims. With various notes on one specific pollster stating, Just shoot him. Get it over with. Hang him. Save the taxpayer's expense. When asking if that same person, if they felt that publicity may have affected the chances of Donald Bull receiving a completely fair and impartial trial in Fulton County, the pollster stated, Yes, do him justice to be tried here. 
He'll do just fine. Location, United Auto Workers Hall, UAW. Do you feel that your knowledge or opinion of prior criminal charges against Honorable affects his ability to have an entirely fair and impartial jury in the current case? No, he is guilty. With a note, hang him. Hell yes, he's guilty. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Hang him. Another note mentions, I know what you're after. Change of venue. And for question eight, concerning Donald Bull's fair and impartial trial being affected by publicity, the same pollster's response was, I don't think so. If it had been broadcast for 30 days that a hurricane was coming, and I walked into a restaurant the day before, saying, you know there's going to be a hurricane tomorrow, they would ask, what's a hurricane? I don't think anybody cares one way or another about Donald Bull. That's the mentality of this community. Although the survey was designed to elicit only yes or no responses, the number of off-survey comments received points to the emotionally charged nature of the case, including more of the following. Hang him. Hell yes, he's guilty. I know what he did to someone. The guy should be executed for doing something like that. Probably all he deserves. Would love to prosecute him. It was a dirty shame. There was no reason for this to happen. Guilty. Guilty. Hang him. Newspaper made it sound like he was guilty. Hang him. I hope he gets hung. Just shoot him. Do him justice to be tried here. Donna and her three-year-old were killed, and the house was set on fire to destroy the evidence. I believe he had access. Believe in death penalty all the way. Don't like the man. Never have. Also, the pollsters reported speaking with many people who were familiar on a personal or family level with either the defendant, the victims, or others involved in the case. Additionally, this survey was compared with others conducted in other counties of similar size for other cases, and those running the survey stated that there seemed to be more people personally familiar with the families involved in this case than in any other survey they had ever conducted. Ladies and gentlemen, it appears public sentiment in Fulton County had fed the Fifth Amendment through a wood chipper and lit and burn it to ash. Moving forward, October 24th, 1995, Peoria Journal-Star. Double murder suspect trial moved from Fulton County. Results of defense survey prompt judge ruling in Bowles case. It is of little surprise that despite Donnie having essentially every motion submitted to Judge William Henderson denied, the judge felt prompted to move the trial out of Fulton County. After all, the Journal-Star stated that Henderson found persuasive the results of a survey of Fulton County residents commissioned in August by Bowles lawyers. 87% of those surveyed said they were familiar with the Bull case, and 54% said what they heard led them to believe Bull was guilty of the murders of Donna and Justine Tompkins. Defense attorney Alyssa McMillan argued that those indicated Bull couldn't get a fair trial in Fulton County. Much of the pretrial coverage, she noted, has mentioned Bull's prior convictions for attacking women. Convictions that wouldn't necessarily be admissible as evidence at Bull's trial. McMillan and Bull's other attorney, Dean Stone, asked the trial to be moved to either Hancock County or McDonough County. Henderson didn't say where the trial would be held. And ironically, the very article goes on to mention Donnie's prior convictions. Convictions that wouldn't necessarily be admissible as evidence in court. 
The article also mentions Donnie's father, Donald Bull Sr., and that he had run unsuccessfully for Fulton County Sheriff in the spring of 1994, stating the following, Bull Sr. testified Monday that when he campaigned in late 1993, after his son had been charged with the March 1993 attack, Fulton County residents confused him with his son, for whom they had evident revulsion. People wanted to know how or why I could possibly be running for sheriff, Bull said. They wanted to know how I got out of jail. People would turn away from me because my name was Donald Bull. State's attorney Ed Danner argued that the defense had fallen short of proving Donald Bull couldn't get a fair trial in Lewistown. Of the 146 people questioned in the defense survey, he noted, 18 hadn't even heard of the Bull case. He also said the newspaper stories submitted to Henderson contained little about the state's case against Bull. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot help but interject, but only to question, can you recall the number of articles I have presented during the course of this podcast? Nor can I, but it certainly is not due to a lack thereof. Continuing on, Henderson, however, agreed with the points of the defense, stating, when weighed against the gravity of the case, I grant the motion for moving the trial. And lastly, Danner said that he is not yet prepared to reveal whether he will seek the death penalty. Ladies and gentlemen, I leave you with a quote. Hang him. Hell yes, he's guilty. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Hang him. Polster, UAW Hall. And given the emotionally charged nature of the case, why not toss in burn for burn? And come to think of it, ladies and gentlemen, in the name of small town cinder, a pollster at Canton Kmart. He could be guilty, but there could also be an upstanding citizen involved. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E Mastered. Research is done by Anne Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.